Welcome to another episode of Mosaic Station. Today we have an audio recording of a special event held here at San Jose State University. As you will hear from the introduction from faculty member Chris Cox, the Departments of Sociology, Justice Studies, Chicana and Chicano Studies, as well as the San Jose Peace and Justice Center, have brought a special guest, Oscar Lopez Rivera, who is speaking about his experiences and the Puerto Rican struggle for decolonization. The recording does end a little abruptly, as our equipment was not available until the very end of the event, but we did try and preserve as much of his talk as we could. If you're interested in more information, feel free to reach out to the Mosaic Cross Cultural Center. Enjoy the episode. Uh, so I, my name is Chris Cox. I teach here in the Department of Sociology and Interdisciplinary Social Sciences, uh, along also with Dr. Vince Montes, who is my office mate, uh, along with Scott Myers-Lipton, who is my office mate. We're the three, the three folks in the, in the same office here, and so we have a wonderful event this evening. Uh, this event comes as a result of co-sponsorship from several departments. So I would like to thank the Department of Sociology and Interdisciplinary Social Sciences. I'd like to thank the Department of Justice Studies, the Department of Chicana Chicano Studies, the Mosaic Cross Cultural Center, and the San Jose Peace and Justice Center. These are the groups that have co-sponsored this event and allowed it to happen. And I would also like to, to thank the Emerging Human Rights Institute at San Jose State University, of which many of the folks that I just previously mentioned are a part. And this is a wonderful opportunity for us to have an event this year that starts off with highlighting issues and concerns of human rights within our community, political sovereignty, and many more issues that we will hear about this evening. We're very pleased to have Oscar Lopez Rivera, former Puerto Rican political prisoner and activist, with us tonight. Mr. Lopez Rivera has spent a lifetime in the fight to free Puerto Rico from U.S. colonial control. In 1981, he was arrested and convicted of seditious conspiracy, along with 10 others who were arrested the previous year. Sentenced to 55 years in prison, he became the longest held Puerto Rican political prisoner in the history of Puerto Rico's struggle for independence, regarded as, quote, the Nelson Mandela of the Americas, end quote. In 2017, as a result of a broad human rights campaign, and after he served almost 36 years in prison, President Obama commuted his sentence. The Puerto Rican people and their allies celebrated the end of his sentence on May 17, 2017. And this evening, Oscar uh, Lopez Rivera will talk with us about what's happening in Puerto Rico, the recovery efforts of Hurricane Maria, the $74 billion debt, and resistance and resilience of the struggle to decolonize Puerto Rico. After Oscar speaks, there will be a Q&A also, so please have some questions ready. And this will be followed by an opportunity for uh, some photos and for book autographs. So without further ado, I welcome Oscar Lopez Rivera. Good evening. Do you hear me? Uh, I, I can. I want to make sure that. that uh, yeah, let's, let's adjust it. For you okay. Let's try that. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. 
it's, it's important for me to know that you're listening. Otherwise, it will be a waste of time. So, no, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the most valuable thing that human beings have is time, because it's the one that once we lose it, we cannot regain it. So, uh, I, I just wanted to mention that just just to kind of you know make it uh, a little bit funnier, a little bit of Puerto Ricans like to be jovial, you know. It's, uh, so so, okay. I, I'm, I'm going to start with the with, uh, issue of colonialism because many people do not understand what colonialism really is. And if we look at a political system that is very, very destructive, that is very dehumanizing, that takes away any, any, any opportunity for there to be democracy and at the same time takes away one of the most fundamental human rights that every human being should have and should exercise, which is the right to self-determination. And I, I think that in Puerto Rico, we have been experiencing this from the, from the time of the Spaniards to 1898 when the United States government decided to invade and occupy Puerto Rico militarily. And from 1898 until the present, Puerto, what has happened in Puerto Rico is that at no time Puerto Ricans have been able to really, really take over Puerto Rico and make Puerto Rico an independent and sovereign nation. So I'm gonna start with what the United States government did once, once it started occupying and taking control of Puerto Rico. In 1898, Puerto Rico had, was, had a, a, a diversified economy. It was trading with European countries, it was selling coffee, it was selling uh, rum, it was selling tobacco, and it was doing the same thing with Central South America and the Caribbean. The United States comes into Puerto Rico and the first thing that it's going to do is to change that economy, take it over, and from that day on, Puerto Rico has not had any control over, uh, over an economy because in a colony, there is no such, such thing as an internal e eco economy. We need, we need an internal economy like any other country. The first, one of the first things that, that uh, President McKinley does in 1898 is to appoint a new governor for Puerto Rico. Uh, this man, the first thing that, that comes out of his mouth is that Puerto Ricans are a mongrel race and that we were dirty and that we were lazy. And right on top of that, he said that Puerto Ricans could not exercise self-government because Puerto Ricans were not Aryans and only Aryans could and were capable of self-government. So from that moment on until we can hear Donald Trump saying basically the same thing, uh, we have not, we have not uh, enjoyed some of the most basic things that we need in order to make Puerto Rico an independent and sovereign nation. Right, right, <clears throat> Right at, uh, it, 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 as, as soon as he gets there, changing the economy, a new economy was imposed. And sugarcane, sugarcane growth and, and refining 
became what the United States, the, the sugar barons from the United States had, had in mind, and Puerto Rico was an ideal place, uh, apparently, to them to do the build uh, a sugarcane industry for themselves. So from 1920, from, from 1900 to 1920, the sugar cane barons had control over 54% of Puerto Rico's most precious uh, and best lands. So they also took a position of uh, providing only starving wages to those who work for them. So within those 20 years, Puerto Rico grew poorer and poorer and poorer. A lot of children were dying. And sometimes you know, people don't realize how difficult, how difficult it is when you don't have the money or, or, the, or the power to really take care of your family, to do what needs to be done for the family. And that, that, that pattern continued from, 19, from 1900 to 1920. The United States government uh, claimed that Puerto Rico was overpopulated. And in 1901, Puerto Ricans would be uh, sent to Hawaii, pushed into Hawaii, and to the southwestern states of the Union. And if we go to Hawaii today, we still have Puerto Ricans in Hawaii that will say, hey, we came here generation after generation after generation. They're there. And mostly all of them identify as Puerto Ricans. So their identity, some of them have retained their identity and they identify themselves as Puerto Rican, which is a glorious thing for us. Because as long as we can identify ourselves as Puerto Ricans, at least we have not been completely dehumanized. The, the pattern of this kind of abuse continue. The fact that they could displace Puerto Ricans in, in the way that they were doing it, and and taking, keeping, and obtaining more and more land, uh, it made Puerto Rico more and more miserable. In order, in order to to uh, make it, itself look like they were doing something positive for Puerto Rico, uh, the Congress of the United States passed the Jones Act in in 1917, and. With the Jones Act, what the government of the United States was saying, that Puerto Ricans were citizens of the United States, but since Puerto Rico was a territory, that Puerto Ricans were not going to participate in any of the national elections. They were not going to elect any, uh, any of, uh, uh, anyone for president of the United States or members of the Congress and, and the Senate. What they were going to do with Puerto Ricans was a simple thing. The United States were going into World War I, and they needed cannon fodder. People, Puerto Ricans, made good cannon fodder according to, to uh, they, they, the way they saw the participations of Puerto Ricans in the First World War. And over 17,000 Puerto Ricans were sent during the, 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 the First World War. Uh, they, they was made into military objects, and uh, quite a few of them died. Uh, but Puerto Ricans should have never been sent to any war 
because Puerto Rico was not at war with anyone. The Puerto Ricans were not at war with anyone. It was the United States who came in there and started messing with us. The other thing that, that the Jones Act did, and something, a big problem that we still have to this day, is that the United States demanded that Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico only use its vessels for anything that would be purchased by Puerto Ricans. Let's say that Puerto Rico would go to uh, Costa Rica or, or Colombia and buy things in Costa Rica or Colombia. The, the shipment will not go directly to Puerto Rico. It will go to Florida and then from Florida to Puerto Rico. The, that's double pay. If you come directly to, to, from Colombia to, to Puerto Rico, money would have been saved. Since 1920, that, that law is on the books and we have not been able to change it yet. And Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico today imports 86% of the things that it consumes. So we continue paying a very high amount of money just for using the U.S. Uh, vessels to bring the stuff to Puerto Rico. In 1920, something starts in Puerto Rico that is probably something that we should internalize and look at. The United States started sterilizing Puerto Rican women. And from 1920 to 1940, in those 20 years, 35% of the Puerto Rican women aged from 20 to uh, 39 were sterilized. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing of you know, how we're controlled, how we're used for experiments. That's the first experiment. The second experiment with women was that the, the contraceptive pill was used. It was used with, with the Puerto Rican woman. The Puerto Rican woman was the guinea pig for the contraceptive pill. So that's two, two things that we, we should look at. But John D. Rockefeller decided to send a scientist to Puerto Rico. His name was Cornelius Rowe. And he arrived in Puerto Rico to do to do an experiment with cancer cells in Puerto Rico. And this man, soon after he arrived in Puerto Rico, he said that he did not care if the patients would live or die. That was his attitude. And then soon after that, he wrote a letter. And in that letter, he said that he had killed eight Puerto Ricans already. And the, the letter went public. And all of a sudden, you know, I guess John, John D. Rockefeller decided to bring him back to the States. But this man, this man was already doing something that probably uh, one of the German uh, who, who were you know, doing things in Germany, he was doing the same thing in Puerto Rico. So, uh, another Mengele, probably. So, uh, we, we, we have you know, this kind kinds of situation taking place. Uh, and, and the experiments continue, continue uh, during, during the Vietnam War, just before the Vietnam War, uh, the only rainforest in the Caribbean is El Junca in Puerto Rico. And Agent Orange was experimented in the Junker of Puerto Rico, the rainforest, the only rainforest in the Caribbean. 
So we, again, we can see, we can see how, how Puerto Rico has been used and continues to be, to be used. I, I was in Vietnam, I'm a Vietnam veteran, I know what Agent Orange does to people. As a matter of fact, when we were going to, to Washington as Vietnam veterans against the war, there was a, 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 a young, a young not, not so young, but he was about 35 years old. He was a captain in the U.S. Army. He was the son of the uh, state, uh, the United States uh, 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 he, was, uh, he was with the, with the, with, with the uh, administration. Uh, he was under the Johnson administration and he was the Secretary of State. And he, when his son started protesting the war, he denounced his son like if he, he, he was a, a complete, a complete, he was a non-member of the family. And a year and a half later, he died of Agent Orange. And we saw him, you know, changing, the body changing, you know, whenever we were, we were protesting in Washington, we could see him. and. Probably in a year and a half, two years, no more than that, he was dead. And he was the victim, the victim of Agent Orange. How cruel can it be? Well, when the father, when a father denounces his son, you know, it's, it's got to be cruel, you know. So uh, that's, again, the, a particular mindset that we have, unfortunately, it still prevails. So when we were when we were when we were you know like 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 uh going into washington we were looking and looking and looking and and you're know, protesting 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 and today i was asked something about you know like uh being a terrorist and stuff like that well, how much terrorism have we suffered well I, I can continue on but there's another side that that i want to present and that's the side of the struggle for that puerto ricans have waged to bring an end to colonialism in Puerto Rico. And, and by 1920, by 1920, the, the, the whole issue of independence began, began to take shape. And one Puerto Rican that I want to mention is Don Pedro Albizu Campos. He was a Harvard graduate. He, he was a lawyer. And during World War I, he was a lieutenant. But by 1920, he was realizing that what the United States government was doing to Puerto Rico was unacceptable. And he starts uh, moving into the mo uh, movement of independence. And in 1927, he decides to do a peregrination starting in the Caribbean, going to Mexico, and then all the way to Argentina. And from 1927 until 1930, he did that peregrination and he was trying to get as much support as he could for the independence of Puerto Rico. And came back, and then in 1930, he's uh, elected president of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party. And at that particular, four years later, that movement that, that, that's you know, been agitated in Puerto Rico, moved in Puerto Rico, the sugarcane workers went on strike, and they asked Don Pedro Abiso Campo to lead the strike. And for the first time in Puerto Rican history up to that moment, it's the first time that sugarcane workers win, win a, a strike. And the minute that that happens, the sugarcane barons 
uh, were totally unsatisfied because now probably the workers will have to be, be paid a little bit more. And from that moment on, the persecution and the criminalization of Don Pedro Albizu Campos and the nationalists began. Two years later, 1936, Don Pedro Albizu Campos is uh, taken to court and found guilty, found guilty of a crime, of, of an impossible crime, because the United States government has used this uh, only with Puerto Rico, it starts in, 19, in 1936. It's called seditious conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States in Puerto Rico by the use of force. And that's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not a crime. I'm gonna explain it a little bit later. So uh, they get sentenced, all eight of them, who are the top leaders of the Puerto Rican National Party, all of, all of them were condemned to 10 years in prison, sent to Atlanta, and kept there, enduring all the, all the things that we endure while we are in prison. A year, a year before that, 1935, the United States government has sent one particular individual, a very a man, a man do, who was known for his ability to really, really uh, attack, and if it was necessary, take lives. 1935, the students at the University of Puerto Rico are beginning to move with the issue of of, uh, of independence, and uh, there is a car with four students. And somehow, a shootout begins. Sorry. Oh, good. Can, can, can people hear me yet? <laughs> so, so the, 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 the four students are in a car, and, and they're getting close, and they know that the students are beginning to uh, make activities in the university, trying to mobilize students to, be, to, to join the independence movement. And they're in the car, and uh, somehow a shootout begins, and all four students were killed. And, and the instructions were given by a man named Elisha. Elisha, uh, uh, I'll get the name in a little bit. But, but he, he was this person who knew, you know, how to how to uh, rigs. Uh, so he 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 knew, you know, that those students had to be, I guess, punished and killed. And there were two students who saw it, and they did something, and this man told one of them to get in the car because, you know, you know. Uh, he saw something that it was positive. So he, they, he gets in the car with them, and this guy who's in the car is a student, takes out a gun and kills him. There were, there were two students. Uh, uh, one stayed on the outside of the car, the other one was inside the car, and those two students were taken to the police station and killed. That's, for us, that's the first massacre. It's called the Ponce Massacre. Two years after that, once the, once the Nationalist Party were already in prison, two years after that, on the 21st of March, on Palm Sunday, the Nationalists had called for a march. They had asked 
they had asked for permission to, to do the march. Another person that had been sent to Puerto Rico was Blanton Winship, and he, he was the governor of Puerto Rico. They came almost together around 1935, Riggs and Blanton Winship. And Blanton Winship said that, he, that that march could not be allowed to take place. They had the permit, and they, they, they said no. You know, th that cannot take place. He goes to the police in Ponce, takes a bunch of policemen with him, and they set up a, almost like a perimeter around those who are going to be marching. None of them had weapons. None of the nationalists had weapons. None of them. There was not, there was not going to be any shooting. And when, when the nationalists gave the order to start the march, the police that were already in place started shooting. 20, 20 uh, people were killed, children, adults, 20 were killed. 200, over 200 of them were wounded. And that's called the Ponce Massacre. And there's a, a history between ACLU and the Ponce Massacre, which is probably worthwhile reading if you, if you ever have a chance, if you take interest in that. But that Ponce Massacre uh, shook Puerto Rico. But behind all of this is also the push of fear. You know, you don't want to lose your life. You don't want to lose anything like that. You don't want to be killed. So it's a very effective, a very effective method to, to employ, like in the case of Puerto Rico. A lot of people, a lot of people began to you know, stay away from, 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 the, from all, all the activities of the Nationalist Party. And little by little, little by little, the ones who were in prison, you know, kind of, you know, they were not getting, couldn't get a lot of support. So now we have a condition in Puerto Rico that, that is definitely, definitely, definitely pushing against the possibility of Puerto Rico becoming an independent and decolonized country. In 1948, because uh, the United States wanted to create a different image, the United States government decided to allow Puerto Ricans to vote for the first governor of Puerto Rico. So Puerto Ricans are going to be, to be elected a governor. It just happened, it just happened that that governor was not very, uh, he, he made a lot of, uh, put out a lot of rhetoric, but he loved the United States more than he loved Puerto Rico. And in 1948, uh, in the United States, I think uh, already the Smith Act was in place. And the Smith Act in the United States was used to attack the left. And a lot of, a lot of people who were part of the Socialist or Communist Party, they, they ended up in prison. In, in 1957, that, that law was declared unconstitutional. In Puerto Rico, the governor of Puerto Rico had been, had been creating an identical law in Puerto Rico just to stop all the nationalists and all the independent supporters and begin to put them in jail. And probably quite a few hundred Puerto Ricans were sent to jail, long sentences in night, from 1950 on 
1950, the reason they do this is because Don Pedro Albizu Campos had been held in the United States, and in 1947 is when he's allowed. He had a 10-year sentence, but it's not until 1947 that he is allowed to return to Puerto Rico. So he did, he stayed in Puerto Rico for, in, in, the, in the United States for over 11 years, rather than completing his 10-year sentence. That, that was a, an extended sentence anyway. So he comes to Puerto Rico and automatically, automatically what is waiting for, for, for Don Pedro Abiso's Campo is the disguised law that is in place already. And little by little, from 1948, uh, 1950, the, the, whole, the, the idea is to incarcerate as many, as many people who were identifying themselves as independentistas and identifying themselves with the Nationalist Party of Puerto Rico. After, after what happens in 1950, where an uprising in Ayuya calling for the independence of Puerto Rico, Don Pedro Albizu Campo is sent back to prison. And he's in prison and, and his health starts, starts affecting him. The, the Puerto Ricans who were in prison under the gag law continue in prison. In 1950, 1950 uh, at, at, almost at the end of 1953, beginning of 1954, the move was made because he was already sick to, to get him out of prison. And in 1950, 1954, four Puerto Ricans went into the Congress of the United States. And when, when the, when the, uh, uh, when they went to the Congress of the United States, they went there with one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to let the world know that Puerto Rico, something had been happening to Puerto Rico, and they wanted the world to know what was happening in Puerto Rico. So they, so they go into the Congress, they start shooting at the roof of the, of the Congress. There were four members of Congress who were injured. No, nobody was killed. And this, this group, this, uh, four, three men and a woman, it was the woman who led the group into the U.S. Congress. And when the police arrested her, she said the following. She said, I came, I came to Washington not to kill anyone, but to give my life for Puerto Rico. That woman's name is Lolita Lebron. Uh, one of our national heroes, and one woman who taught us how important it is to be Puerto Rican, to defend Puerto Rico, and not to allow, not to allow for a moment for Puerto Rico to be turned into something that it is not, and to continue fighting for the independence of Puerto Rico. She died in 1990, uh, in, well, last year, throughout Puerto Rico and even in the diaspora, we were celebrating her 100th. Uh, she would have been 100 years old. Uh, so uh, we, were, we were very, very, very pleased to, to have uh, a very, very good turnouts in the United States and in Puerto Rico, showing how much we love her, showing that she is still among us, even though she's dead. The four, the four are, are sent to prison with real long sentences. 
there is a fifth man in prison. This fifth man w was part of a two-man team who went to Blair House because Truman was in Blair House because they were fixing the White House. And they found out that, that Truman was in Blair House and they went to kill Truman. And uh, Griselio Torresola killed somebody, he gets killed, and, and Oscar, Oscar Collazo Lopez gets killed. Uh, no, gets wounded. He, he is sentenced to death. A, a humongous campaign was organized worldwide. And in 1952, Truman uh, commuted his sentence to life in prison. But it, it, it was probably 200,000 people uh, asking for, uh, for Truman to commute his sentence. So in 19, 1952, from 1952 on, he was uh, a, a prisoner, a political prisoner. My relationship with those five persons, the four that, that, uh, that uh, were, uh, went, that went to the Congress and, uh, and the one who went to kill President Truman started in 19, 1967. I had come back from Vietnam, and my experiences in Vietnam dictated to me that I had to find out that what was the reason for the war in Vietnam, but also what the Vietnamese people, who they were, what they were doing, and why, why they, were, they were being uh, t kind of uh, pushed in the same situation, the same process that we were experiencing, that we had experienced in Puerto Rico. But the Vietnamese were, were already uh, very, very, very good at fighting. Because in 1954, they were able to defeat the French. So the French were extremely arrogant, as arrogant as probably the, those who said, we have, to, we have to go to Vietnam. Promising, promising to the Vietnamese that they were going to bring democracy into Vietnam because it was becoming communist. The same thing, the same thing that we were told in, 19, in, in 1899, because in 1898, because when, they, when, the, when, when General Nelson Miles arrived in Puerto Rico, invaded and occupied Puerto Rico, he said that he had come to Puerto Rico, that they were in Puerto Rico to bring democracy and the American way of life. To, to the Puerto Ricans. And two years before that, just to show you who Nelson Miles was, he, he was meeting with Geronimo, the last warrior of the Apaches. And they were negotiating. They were negotiating, and he told, he told uh, Geronimo, see that land, that land is for you, you can cultivate it, and we definitely want you to have a democratic system and also, we're going to bring to you the American way of life. And the next photo that we will see of Geronimo is Geronimo on a train on his way to prison. And that could be documented and that could be found out. So I don't want people to say, well, where did you get that from? Um, do a little bit of research on the Native Americans in this country and what they have gone through. And they will probably get an answer and probably get a good idea why the Native Americans today are in the conditions that they are. So we can see we can see how all these things uh, come together, how they mesh, how they. So 
1967, I, I started, I started being an opponent to the war. I started working in the Puerto Rican community because our community was a community that was totally marginalized, invisible, and without a voice. And the year before, Puerto Ricans had had a riot in the city of Chicago because of the treatment. They got tired of being abused by the Chicago Police Department. And, and a riot had erupted. So when I got back from Vietnam, friends of mine who had been involved in the riots started talking to me about what they had done and the importance of us trying to do something for Puerto Rican independence. So we were talking, and it was more like an utopian kind of talk. We knew very little about struggles and how to watch a struggle. But little by little, yeah, we started, we started moving and, and organizing in the Puerto Rican community. I became a, a community organizer. And little by little, little by little, we started working on the campaign to get the five Puerto Rican uh, political prisoners out of prison. And I remember knocking on doors on Puerto Rican Puerto Ricans' door in the community, and one of the com one of the uh, of those who knew him would say, "Are they still in prison?" They did not know that they they were still in prison in 1967. Collazo had been in prison for 17 years already. Lolita Lebron, Rafael Cancel Miranda, Irving Flores, Andres Figueroa Caldero had been in there for 13 years. And we started little by little, a very small, very small campaign, little by little, knocking on doors, talking to people, talking to people. At the same time, in New York there was another campaign, and in Puerto Rico there was another campaign. And little by little, we mounted a campaign. And on the 10th of September, 1979, four, four of the five uh, were, uh, President Carter had the decency and the dignity to allow them commute their sentences unconditionally, uh, and 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 uh, he had already given freedom to Andres Figueroa Caldero, who had terminal cancer, and a few months later, on the 10th of, 10th of September, he allowed the other four to come home from prison, and they went to Chicago, they went to New York, and then to Puerto Rico, and they, to us, became the five Puerto Rican national heroes. And they are still our national heroes. Four of, them, four of them have passed away. And unfortunately, the health of Rafael Cancel Miranda, who, who was, uh, this is uh, what a story of, of what fighting and struggling is. He was seven years old when the Ponce massacre took place. His mother, his mother, he talks about his mother being with her dress full of blood because she was trying to help some of the people who were wounded. And from, from that age, when he was seven years old, until today, he's still, he's still fighting and struggling, even on, his, on a bed that he cannot move from, but he's still encouraging us to go forward, not to give up, to continue the struggle. And we have those, the, 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 the things that the United States government has done, and we have the Puerto Ricans fighting, fighting for Puerto, Rico's, for Puerto Rico's independence and freedom. And we have not given up. Uh, in, our case, in our case, we started 
to struggle for the independence of Puerto Rico, little by little again, moving, 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 moving. And we chose, we chose clandestinity because in, 19, in 1966, 1967, 1968, the FBI was going into Puerto Rico and, and, and created, crea created more and more and more problems for us. Right on top of us, uh, persecution, uh, we, we were, I remember many times, you know, where I would, I would look around and there would be an FBI agent or two FBI agents working on, 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 uh, on, the, on trying to arrest us or get, get, get rid of us or whatever it was in their minds, I don't know. But they were there. And on the 4th of April, uh, 11 of my co-defendants were captured. And on the uh, 29th of May, 1981, I was captured. And uh, of, the, of the 11 who were captured in, in the 4th of April, 1980, uh, one decided to, to become uh, a, a, a person who would be working with the FBI, and the rest, the other 10, uh, went to trial. And it's important to point out that those 10 and later on, a year and a half later, I uh, took a position that we were not going to defend ourselves. And we did not, we said that we will not defend ourselves because what the United States government had done in Puerto Rico was a crime. And that we will not submit ourselves to the jurisdiction of the United States government. Uh, let the government do whatever he wanted to do with us, uh, but we will not, we were not going to defend ourselves. And we went to trial, we got real long sentences. The judge, Judge McMillan, uh, one of the women uh, who was part of the, of the ones arrested on the 4th of April, of 4th of April 1980, <coughs> When, she's, when she was talking, the judge said that if the law would have permitted him, he would have sentenced her to death. This woman was an assistant school principal and had been working with students from the moment that she graduated from the university, from uh, Northeastern University until today, she's still with the same position. Imagine being told that if the law would permit it, he would have sentenced her to death, and all of us would have been sentenced to death if the law had permitted it. But the sentences that we, we, we received were very, very, uh, anywhere from, I was sentenced first to 55 years, and I was probably, at that particular moment, I was the lowest sentence. There were some who were sentenced to 95, 100 years. Some of them uh, were convicted and sent first to the to Illinois because they were com uh, 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 arrested in, in Illinois, and they did time in the in the state system and then sent to the federal system. Uh, Harry Beltran was sentenced to life in prison. Uh, uh, 
some some the, the sentence of life life in prison to her to her to some 95 75 years but that did not that did not uh, uh, make made us, made us uh, blink an eye you know we were we had made the decision and we left up to the commitment to that decision in 19 in 1999 after after a big big campaign had been organized not only in Puerto Rico and the states but also throughout the world President Clinton offered clemency to 13 of us. He excluded two of my co-defendants. And in 1999, I, I rejected the clemency that President Clinton had offered me, and 12 of my co-defendants went home, and they're, they're, they're all continue with the struggle. They, 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 they're doing, they have different jobs. Some are teaching, some are uh, running uh, clinics. Uh, some have businesses, so uh, they're still part of the struggle and want Puerto Rico to be uh, uh, an independent and sovereign nation. In my case, I, I, I had to stay until the 17th of May, uh, 2017. Uh, President Obama commuted my sentence and uh, he he, commuted, he he talked about commuting my sentence on the on the seventeenth uh, of January, uh, nineteen seventeen, two days before he was walking out of the White House, and my two co-defendants, uh, Haiti was uh, uh, put in. She came under uh, parole, and I think that she still has to report. Uh, she was uh, two, 2009, and the following year, Carlos Alberto Torres was uh, released on the 26th of July. Uh, and for me, uh, people ask you, why, why did I do, why did I do what I did? And there's a very simple reason: I have never left anyone behind, whether it was in Vietnam, whether it was in the city of Chicago, in the streets of Chicago, or uh, anywhere. So uh, they, they came home and that was, that was the greatest moment for me because I saw them coming out of prison and uh, they, were, they, were, they came out and, and they, they, they are very productive, very productive uh, human beings. They have, they have continued doing positive things, teaching, doing all other things that each one of them, their professions, uh, uh, push them into that direction. So. Basically, in, in, in this whole thing, when we look at what happened in Puerto Rico, what is happening in Puerto Rico right now, talks and, and shows us what Puerto Rico and, and why Puerto Rico is in the conditions that it is. All of a sudden, by 2014, this, this, this uh, uh, point was being made that Puerto Rico owed a $74 billion debt. And immediately after this was being pushed out, Puerto Rico started asking for the debt to be audited. Because if we were to ask any Puerto Rican today, where did that money go to? Who spent it? How was it used? Nobody can tell us. 
Nobody can tell us if he went into pockets, if he went to do some kind of project. Nobody can tell us that. The federal court, the case was taken to the federal court, and definitely they said no, that they were not going to allow the debt to be audited. And this is a debt that uh, probably the hedge funds and the banking industry uh, is pushing because a lot of people, and, and this is how junk bonds you know, really work, is that they buy, they buy, they purchase the bonds your, uh, your probably 10% of his face value, 20% of his face value, but they demand that the whole value be paid and sometimes over because in the case of Argentina, when the Kirchner's were in office, they refused, they refused to pay the debt. And then came this, uh, this man who, who, who definitely was placed there for just for that, Macri became the president and all of a sudden, not only were they pay 100% on, the, on the, the face value of the bonds, but it was over the, the, the value that the bond, the, on the face value of the bond. I think it was like 20% over the, the, the one. They say it was a $100 bond. It was $110 that the, the Argentinians paid for, just to uh, clear that debt. And we're facing the same situation. But, uh, the Congress of the United States, which is the one that has the power to dictate to us what happens in Puerto Rico, created, passed a law that is called PROMESA law. PROMESA in Spanish. In English, it's a promise. And what promise was it? Well, they elected seven people who have, who have a vested interest in the debt. And that uh, is called the Fiscal Control Board they came to Puerto Rico, and what they did right away is take control of the budget, the budget of Puerto Rico. They dictate to Puerto Rico how the money is going to be spent. And out of the University of Puerto Rico's budget, there is a $500 million that they want, they're, they're, they're extracting $500 million out of the University of Puerto Rico. And what happens when a university loses such a big amount of money? Well, of course, Programs are going to be eliminated. The student tuition is going to go up. Some of the professors who are there will probably, rather than have a full-time job, they will have a part-time job. And little by little, little by little, that university will collapse. And uh, the, there's, there's, there's this whole thing that started in the United States in the early 70s with the Trilateral Commission that privatization was important, that globalization was important, that the banking industry had to be deregulated, that the liberal education in the university should be eliminated. Those are probably four of the goals of those who control, really control the, the power in this country. And all four, all four of those things have been, have been put into practice and have been since, since probably mid-70s up to now, we can see what globalization is, we can see what privatization is, and we can see what the deregulation of the banking industry, because if what we, the debt that we have in Puerto Rico is the result of that uh, deregulation of the banking industry. Because 
in 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 1980 1984 the United States the Congress of the United States passed 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 a law eliminating Puerto Rico from being allowed to use the bankruptcy body the, the structure that allows you to fight in bankruptcy court they were Puerto Rico was taken so anyone wants to see it look at what happened in 1984 now there was a reason for that, and behind that was the banking industry. So that's how the banking industry works. And uh, it, it, one, one of the good things, since this is a university, one of the good things is that in, by 1980, and in, up to 1980, the student debt in this country was not that big. But now, now, it's in the trillions of dollars. And who benefits from it? The banking industry. So th those are the things. If, if a student, I have a granddaughter at, at uh, Pomona in Pomona, and she'll be graduating as a dentist in May. She will have a debt, definitely, and she will have to pay that debt just to study and become a dentist. You know, you costly. So I feel I feel pain for those who have to pay pay money come out of you out of the university having having a debt i came out of the university without any debt so it's a big difference one 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 thing that i want to point out is how this how this fiscal control board has control over puerto rico if if he has the control over the budget then he controls all of us and that that then uh, what what is going to happen is that the federal court is moving moving on the debt, but the federal court most likely most likely will force Puerto Rico. It will not be to the benefit of Puerto Rico. Whatever decision the federal court will make, it will be to the benefit of the banking industry, the those, those uh, vultures in in, uh, in in Wall Street. They are the ones who are going to profit, and the Puerto Ricans will be poor and poor, and the students will be will be paying higher and higher debt. Between 2012 and today, over 700 schools, public schools in Puerto Rico, have been closed. It, it, it is sad. You know, I can go to some of the schools when I see that kids are not having access to art classes. So one of the things that we know already is that uh, something that is so beautiful, so needed, that they, they don't have, they're not having access in a lot of the schools. Uh, the, the schools, once they close them, you live in a neighborhood. Now you have to get transportation to go to the other school where you've been assigned. So throughout Puerto Rico, we have those, that amount of schools that have been closed, and the threat is that they will probably close more. And then we had we had recently the unfortunate uh, uh, thing that happens in Puerto Rico, an earthquake. And even today, that earth is still trembling. Uh, some some of the schools in those municipalities were destroyed. And the Puerto Rican government is not saying the colonial government of Puerto Rico is not saying that hey, they have the money to, re to replace those schools that have been destroyed. 
and they don't have they don't have the permit or the permission of the fiscal control board to do anything with uh, with, with with the money that is part of the budget of Puerto Rico. So right now, right now we can see how how we are going to be navigating another big problem that we navigated. Uh, what happened after Hurricane Maria? Listen, listen carefully. carefully.